we've been involved for about the last four or five, maybe even six years now, actually, in a very interesting project, which I'll describe. And one of the things which has happened over those years is that um, it may come as a disappointment to you, but uh, really, however good the plant is, and however good the product is that the plant makes, supply chains matter. And it's horrendous when you realize that, but they really, really do. So I might be talking about things that you're probably not expecting, because I'm not going to talk. I'm going to talk about our project, and I'll talk about plants, and I'll get excited about aspects of it. But I hope to talk about more things than just plants, to give you an idea of just how this incredibly beautiful plant, which uh, uh, Alison's mentioned. This is a field trial that we have now in progress in Madagascar. And I was out there just two weeks ago, ate too many prawns and got food poisoning. Um, but these are uh, our Artemisia, uh, some of our Artemisia out in field trials. And it's a beautiful plant and it's a product which is incredibly important um, to the world, um, which uh, you can see on the next slide. Um, malaria is, is, is a major issue, and it's not one that really uh, we think about very much unless um, we, we're going on holiday, many of us. Um, but it's, it's a disease which effectively, um, if you look at the dark blue, which is where there are areas where we're still trying to control the disease, then there are huge areas of, of, of the world which malaria affects. And I'm not a clinician, and I don't know very much about malaria, but I thought I'd just take you through a few aspects of malaria so you can begin to uh, put the plant and plant biology in context. So um, in 2008, WHO reported that there'd been over 240 million cases, 85% uh, of which were in the African region. And if you think that the UK population is about 62 million, then effectively you've got four times the population of the UK catching malaria every year. So it's a massive, massive issue. And there are uh, approaching a million deaths a year. Um, and most of those, by far, are in sub-Saharan uh, Africa, and most of them are children under five. So we have a huge impact of malaria. And it's primarily a disease of the poor. But I think if we just go from the, um, from the top to the bottom, it actually is not only a disease of the poor, but when you read reviews about malaria by, by clinicians and by economists, then you realize effectively <coughs> malaria is both a disease of the poor, but it also causes and maintains poverty because the economies of the countries that are suffering from malaria uh, are just really essentially smashed by the disease. And it represents a major burden on economic development, particularly the sustainability of sub-Saharan Africa. So it causes many, many problems. And as I'm sure you know, it's, uh, the vector is, is a mosquito, uh, and the parasite which causes problems is, is a protozoan, single cell parasite, uh, plasmodia species. And one particular uh, form of plasmodia is the most dangerous, Um Highest rates of complication and mortality and represents more than 80% of all malaria infections and greater than 90% of all malaria deaths. And um, a friend of mine actually uh, got malaria when she was traveling in Vietnam. and. Um, she was travelling alone, and uh, fortunately, uh, she went to bed with what she thought were flu-like symptoms. And fortunately, I say some people happened to have had supper with her that night, and when they didn't see her the next day, it turned out that she did have malaria, and she lost half of her feet, um, literally within about a week, because of the huge problems to cause when these blood cells uh, become infected and effectively become sticky and start to actually prevent circulation of blood and you can get uh, gangrene very, very easily in the extremities. So it's a horrible disease. Um, 
if you treat uncomplicated malaria, then uh, you, you, the aim is to cure infection, to prevent progression to severe malaria. And uh, this incredible sentence uh, that I came across when I was preparing this lecture, you treat, severe patient, you treat severe malaria simply to prevent the patient dying. So there are major risks to pregnant women and also, as I've mentioned already, to young children. Huge amounts, huge amounts of international funding go into malaria control. And this has increased massively in recent years. If you compare just the five years between 2003 and 2004, six years, seven, eight, nine. It's massively increased, and the money is pouring in from a number of sources, from the Global Fund, from malaria initiatives from the World Bank, and from many other donors and agencies. And I'll be talking about work later that's been funded in our lab by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But this is just one aspect of, of, of the major scale of malaria control interventions. And so there's essentially an integrated strategy where you use insecticidal uh, treated um, bed nets, you spray indoors with DDT, DTT, DTT, and you also use increasingly rapid diagnostic tests to make sure that the fever, which is where it's being presented, the disease is being presented, is in effect malaria. And of course, you treat malaria. And it's been shown over the years that if an integrated strategy is used, and if you manage to get these different interventions across to a high coverage of the population of the country, then you can certainly have a very positive impact and decrease the cases of malaria and decrease the cases of death. There's an organisation called Rollback Malaria, which some of you may also um, know about, and their, their website is very, very interesting if you go onto the net. And effectively, their aim is a world free from the burden of malaria. Um, and they have a number of, 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 of objectives to, to reduce the global number of malaria deaths to near zero um, by 2015 that it should be eliminated initially in eight to ten countries, but then afterwards in all countries, and in the long term eradicate malaria through progressive elimination. And this whole issue, if any of you are, are clinicians or have been involved in, in medicine in developing countries, the question of whether you can eradicate malaria is a very interesting one, which when we uh, attended a malaria summit in Seattle several years ago, which was, I think we were the only two, myself and my colleague who lead the project in York, the only two plant scientists and about 800 people, the rest were clinicians. And there was an enormous discussion as to whether it was possible to eradicate malaria, whether one should try and eradicate it. Um, what, how one would achieve it. And there was a lot of, of discussion about, about that whole business of coming out to say, we are going to eradicate malaria. So the problem, obviously, is malaria cases. The way that the mosquitoes uh, transmit, uh, the vector works, and of course, death. And then the solution, prompt access to effective treatments and the right treatments, so you need a rapid diagnostic test to see whether you actually got malaria. Mosquito control in a variety of ways and try and prevent malaria, particularly in pregnancy. So there is a tremendous amount of effort, a tremendous amount of money, a tremendous amount of commitment worldwide to controlling and eliminating this disease in a whole variety of different ways. Now, if we move from, if you like, the holistic aspect of it to malaria treatment, and we think about the resistance to anti-malarial drugs, which I'm sure many of you have heard about because it's been in the news a lot um, over many years, and essentially it still represents a major public health problem because there has been, as you probably know, rapid spread of resistance over the last decades to some of the classical anti-malarials that have been used by quinine or chloroquine. And WHO effectively um, 
has taken the position, or took the position, several years ago now, to recommend the fact that rather than countries uh, trying to treat malaria with drugs where there was already considerable resistance to those drugs, WHO wanted to recommend the fact that they would use one particular type of therapy, and this therapy is called an artemisinin combination <coughs> therapy. Now, these artemisinin combination therapies are exactly what they say. They contain artemisinin, and they contain a second drug. And the reason why the combination therapies are the ones that have been recommended by WHO is essentially, it's like the old Ajax advert, for those of you who remember it. Artemisinin goes in like a white tornado and essentially wipes out the plasmodium, but then gets cleared by our own bodies very, very quickly. So it goes in, devastates the parasite, and is cleared. Now, if it doesn't clear all of the parasites, then obviously you have the possibility of continuing infection. So you back it up with a second or a third different type of drug, which can also combat plasmodia, but less effectively, and that effectively sweeps up after the artemisinin has been cleared by the body. So these artemisinin combination therapies are the chosen therapies. But recently, again, many of you may have heard it in the news, there is now resistance even breaking out to artemisinin combination therapies. And one of the problems for this, and we'll talk about it later, is that parasite resistance is strongly promoted by the type of treatment, effectively, if you take artemisinin simply as a monotherapy, it works. It's cleared too quickly from the body to completely eliminate the parasite, and that can lead to resistance. And also, a huge problem with substandard and fake drugs, which are actually sold in the private markets in many of the countries that are endemic in malaria. So there are the major issues of public versus private sector supply of drugs. Many of the donors, like the World Bank and the Global Fund, will actually pay for treatments through the public sector, through the public health facilities. But many of the people who are suffering from malaria are not actually getting to the public health facilities and they are reliant on the private sector, the guys going around on bicycles selling everything, including drugs. <coughs> and many of these drugs are either monotherapies or, worse still, fake. So resistance can happen in all sorts of ways, and there are major issues of, of, of really a patient, of, 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 of how do you balance the supply of anti-malarials through the public sector and through the private sector? And how do you increase patient awareness to make sure that they are aware of, of, of what is the best treatment for them at what time? And again, this is, a, this is a, a vast area where there are literally thousands upon thousands of highly committed people trying to get to grips with how to actually uh, provide appropriate treatments to the people that need them. So if we go back um, just one, and I mentioned these artemisinin combination therapies, and this is effectively where we start to talk about the plant in more detail. And artemisinin, as, as I'm sure you know, is produced by uh, Artemisia annua, and this is a wild, a wild medicinal plant. It's been used for thousands of years in China. And it looks like this, and we'll look at it in more detail soon, and I'll explain what these other things are in a minute. So in China and Vietnam, uh, people still continue, uh, those countries still continue to be the major production areas of Artemisia annua for Artemisinin, for these Artemisinin combination therapies. And mostly, more than 80%, is actually collected leaves from the wild rather than planted varieties. In East and Southern Africa and Madagascar, there is some production, but all of this is planted leaf, because clearly the plants aren't native to East, Southern Africa, to Madagascar. And the production is planted leaf only, and 
there are problems associated with growing Artemisia annua in these countries, uh, not least um, because often the wild seed from China is sent to these countries and then surprise, surprise, it doesn't grow well under the different conditions. So there are problems associated with growing uh, Artemisia in these, in these areas and, and these areas are the ones that I would say are taking up the new varieties that have been developed by a number of organisations to try and get good plants that could robustly grow in those areas. India is also, I apologise, India is also an area where it's not a major production area but it's growing and we'll talk about why that is the case uh, in a moment. In a fascinating and frustrating uh, way, it's interesting that Artemisia annual is a crop of small-scale farmers. The whole of the world supply currently of Artemisia to control and eliminate malaria is in the hands of about 100,000 small-scale farmers. And small-scale farmers have quite large farms when they have half a hectare. So there's an issue there. And the way, typically, that the, this particular supply chain works from seeds to plants to harvested leaf, because you want the product from the leaf, which then is extracted, which then, as we'll find out, goes into artemisinin combination therapies. Typically, the extractor is the center of a collection of small-scale farmers. The, the extractor buys the seeds or gets the seeds, distributes the seeds to maybe several thousand, up to 10,000 per extractor, small-scale farmers, who then grow the seeds and then provide the leaves back to the extractor, who then extracts the leaves and then sends the extract onwards along the supply chain. So the extractors play a key role because they essentially organize the supply chain from providing the seeds to the growers and then receiving the leaves from those growers. Now, supply chains matter here because, effectively, there has to be extremely good agricultural extension services between the extractor and the growers, because otherwise the growers can't grow the plant. If the small-scale farmers go for Artemisia annua against a food crop, and the price drops, of artemisinin on the world market and they don't get a good return, then essentially they're stuck because they get very little money and they can't simply use the crop to feed their own families. So each of these small-scale farmers also has to make a decision about whether to go for a food crop, to go for another cash crop, or to go for artemisia. They're not committed to artemisia, they're committed to an income and a livelihood. And so their interactions with the extractor are crucial. And if, like our project, which I'll talk about in a minute, if, if our project is providing varieties of artemisia that are robust and maybe have high levels of artemisia in them, then the growers are not the people that we interact with. We have to interact with the extractors because it's the extractors that have got the agricultural extension networks that then feed into the farmers. So it's a very interesting supply chain issue when you start to try and introduce improved seeds to grow better plants, to have better artemisinin and content to be extracted to go into the pharmaceutical manufacture. Now, typically, uh, a reasonably good variety of Artemisia will produce about 1.5 to 2 tonnes of biomass per hectare. But the content of Artemisia, and I'll come back to that uh, very shortly, the content of Artemisia varies. It can vary on the quality of the seed, it can vary on the farmer's ability, it can have an enormous ability range between the different small-scale farms. It can vary on the agronomy, 
It can vary on the climate and the environment, and the content can vary between 0.4 and 1.6%, which is quite a large range if you think about it. Typically, if you're collecting leaves from the wild, as in China, then you're looking at 0.4%. If you're working with extractors and um, farmers um, working with those extractors in Africa, then you can sometimes be looking at 1.6%. Once the plant has produced the artemisinin, it has to be harvested, and then the leaves go to the extractor, and then you have a, a situation with the extractors that maybe they're good extractors or maybe they're bad extractors, just like they're good farmers or bad farmers. So the extraction of the artemisinin from the leaf itself can vary in an industrial process from 40 to 95%. So again, you can have a major impact on the availability of artemisinin for ACT manufacture simply because you haven't got a good extraction system. And then in addition, you have this whole issue about whether you grow the plants nationally to produce the ACT treatment nationally or whether the extractors pass those extracts to other uh, companies that make what's called the active pharmaceutical ingredient. And perhaps sometimes the manufacturers, the pharmaceutical companies, actually will also make the APIs. But very often they are a different company. So again, you have a whole different supply chain issue leading from when the extractor starts to extract the leaves through to the artemisinin, through to the modification to the active pharmaceutical <coughs> ingredient that then goes into the final treatment. So effectively, tonight, we're going to spend most of our time thinking about this. But I think it's really important that this is full of supply chains. It's full of supply chains. It's full of funding issues. It's full of donor organizations across the world. It's full of charitable intentions. It's full of politics. It's full of private versus public sector contrasts. And at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is get the healing power of plants in Artemisia annual to somebody who really desperately needs it. So we'll talk about the plant and we'll talk about our project, but remember that this is just really at the tip of an inverse iceberg. So the plant is, uh, is beautiful, and I hope you'll come and see our seeds plants in the, uh, in, the, in the garden. In the UK, it can grow to five, six foot high. Uh, big, bushy, beautiful green plant. And the glass houses, you can just smell it. Um, mainly camphor is what you smell, a whole load of different uh, metabolites in it. And um, we were uh, uh, fortunate enough to be uh, at the Royal Society Summer Exhibition, I think, last year, or the year, maybe it was the year before. And uh, we took these big plants, you know, and everybody got very excited about them. And then, effectively, um, if we just focus on this bit at the top, effectively, the only point where artemisinin is made, uh, if, we go, sorry, if we go back to these leaves, the only place that artemisinin is made on plants that are this high and very green and very healthy are in these tiny little factories on leaves, which we'll talk about in a moment. So you have a huge biomass of greenery, and you have these tiny little factories on the leaves, which are the only part of the entire plant that make artemisinin. So farmers, growers, like big bushy biomass, yeah. and extractors like no biomass, <coughs> huge content, because then it's not so expensive to extract. So that's another issue where if you're providing plants for different markets, which is effectively what we're doing, 
then the growers in India are perhaps rather like the French and very articulate and aggressive and like big biomass. And the growers in Africa just like some funds and so therefore go with the extractors who like large content and low biomass. So the research centre that I was fortunate to lead for about uh, 12 years uh, when we started this project um, is, is our, our aim is to develop high yielding uh, non-GM, we can come back to that in the questions if you're interested, but high yielding varieties of Artemisia annua. And the point is that we want to try and use these high yielding varieties to improve the supply of Artemisia for use in ACTs. And we were fortunate to actually be funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And we were interested in this whole area. I, well, particularly, I'm particularly committed to biology to benefit society. And I think that given the situation with the world currently, then I think that it's time that biology really does benefit society. And so we were interested in a whole range of different projects, and this was one in particular, where we could bring our understanding of plants and plant biology to really make a difference in, in actually developing varieties of, of Artemisia that could grow in a number of, 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 of different varieties, in a number of different geographical regions, whether it's Africa or India or China. And so we, we went over to Seattle and talked to a room full of clinicians about the fact that plants are great and that um, there's a number of ways of, of trying to produce artemisinin, and you have heard of, for example, it can be produced in fermenters, and it's starting to be produced in fermenters, but we, we made the case that actually the only production system that was working five years ago, and still the only production system five years later, are plants in fields, and next to nothing was actually known at the molecular level about these plants. And very little modern molecular methods have been applied to understand these plants and how these plants make artemisia. And so we uh, were fortunate in receiving uh, one grant from the foundation, which was a research and development grant, where we were researching and trying to understand more about the plant. And then just recently, a second grant, which is a development and delivery grant, where we're now delivering the products of the research and development out into the fields of growers. So, as I mentioned, we have the plant, and these are these factories, which uh, I'll show you some more pictures of, and they're called trichomes. They're, they're glands, they're glandular factories, and they exist only on the leaves and also on the flowers, actually, but mainly on the leaves. And these are the only sites on the plant that make artemisinin, which is this quite complicated molecule, very, very active. So we, we actually showed this slide uh, at the Gates Foundation Seattle, because effectively, if you want to increase the yield of artemisia, well then you can increase the productivity of the factory, you can make factories produce more, or you can simply have more factories. Um, or you can simply have more leaves on a plant. So, you know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite basic, really. So effectively, we could try and make, and try and understand what the factories do, and therefore make their production lines much more uh, robust and, and much more efficient. Or we could simply try and understand plant development more, so that we could have more of those factories on on leaves, or again we could understand the architecture of the plant so that we could actually have increased branching, make more leaves, have much greater leaf number and therefore have much greater number of trichomes and therefore much greater yield of optimism. So there's a variety of ways of handling it. And one of the uh, things that I found most exciting was these, about it were these trichomes. So here, here are the leaves, here are the trichomes on the leaves. And you can see, this is a transmission EM, and you can see that actually there's very few cells that actually make artemisinin. 
and make a whole range of other chemicals as well. And they have a very characteristic little, little view on scanning the end. And you can knock them off. So you can actually devise a method where you take the leaf and you can just literally, just sort of like, I mean, ping, and they ping off. And so you can get essentially a test tube that's just full of these little factories. Now, unfortunately, they don't work when they're in, fact in a test tube, when they you know, die quickly. But they, they're there sufficiently long and functioning for you to understand what's going on in them rather than having to understand what's going on in them against the background of the whole leaf, if you can imagine. So you can actually very quickly start to understand what's going on in them, because that's all you're looking at, rather than having to take away the background of what leaves do. And we were very fortunate to devise a method for that. And I just want, I'm not going to talk about this, but what, what is interesting is it's quite a, a, an interesting metabolic pathway that leads to our artemisinin. And the most interesting thing about it is that some of it's carried out by enzymes, but then some of it is purely chemical. It's non-enzymatic. And so if you go back, then effectively it seems that the initial steps are carried out in cells but it's probable that the late steps are actually autocatalytic chemical steps that actually occur outside of the cells. And the artemisinin, which is a highly toxic chemical, is actually stored under a cuticle outside of the living cells, which otherwise would cause enormous damage by the artemisinin, which I think is just lovely, you know, just beautiful biology. And so the early steps, you have enzymes and you need living cells. The later steps, when you start to build in this highly reactive endoperoxide bridge, is probably chemical. And the artemisinin itself is stored outside the plant. So because um, we had a grant, we were able to really carry out extensive analyses of these plants and we have you know huge bits of equipment that do amazing things but the thing is that we were allowed to by, by by having this equipment we could start to understand what actually was going on in the in in the plant and in these trichomes and start to understand chemicals that correlated with the manufacture of artemisinin or correlated with how easy it was to extract the artemisinin from the leaf after the leaf had been harvested. And this is really important because this little fellow here, deoxyartemisinin, is a degradation product, it's a breakdown product from artemisinin, and it's lost its endoperoxide bridge, and it's dead as a dodo. Right? So if you post-harvest, have conditions in those leaves such that artemisinin is easily degraded to this other chemical, you'll have loads of leaves which did have artemisinin in, but then the artemisinin has broken down to something that's not much good. So you've got to be aware of the conditions that may lead to this breakdown so that you can start to develop varieties of plants where this breakdown doesn't occur so much or to such a great extent. So our strategy was really, um, I'm just going back because I just want to explain. So the thing was that we had to do this within a very, very short space of time because artemisinin is in short supply. Artemisinin, because it's in short supply to the ACT manufacturers, was going up, down, boom and bust prices. It was going from $200 a kilo to over $1,500 a kilo. It was just going up and down. When the price was low, none of the farms wanted to grow it. When the price went high, everybody in the world wanted to grow it. So the price plunged again. So the supply chains, in inverted commas, were not, as they say, robust. Right? So we wanted to develop varieties as quickly as we could, which had a good artemisinin content, could grow well in all these different places, and we could stabilize the supply chains so that people 
know that if you plant that and do that, you'll get that. So, because so little was known about the plant, we had to actually understand the plant while we were trying to develop products from that plant. So we had to actually run a whole host of parallel strategies, some to do with research, some to do with development, even some to do with delivery. We were talking with Novartis and Cipla and Ipka, the Indian generic chemical companies, you know, almost at the beginning of the project, having to run them all in parallel, because as the science was going on in one direction, we were having to actually set up relationships with field trial partners, we were having to talk to extractors, we were having to talk to the ACT manufacturers. And the whole thing has been a sort of like, sort of, well, it's been hectic to say the least, and it's all run in parallel. So the scientific strategy was essentially to, I won't go into detail about this because it will take too long, essentially we wanted to try and identify individuals from a population of Artemisia which had high yield and were robust. And then those individuals would allow us to make new hybrids, which we could then test in field trials and then produce seeds. So, as of today, what we have four years later is essentially a pipeline of new hybrids of Artemisia. And the first phase hybrids, which we already now have field trial data coming back from the project, and I'll talk about that in a minute, particularly from Africa and India, they was, it's like setting hairs running at the beginning of the project, before we had the genetic map, before we understood much of what was going on in these trichodes. We had to get something running quickly. And effectively, that meant just screening over 23,000 individual plants to find those individuals with high levels of, of, of artemisinin to start getting them into a breeding program. So those hairs were running, or greyhounds, whatever the expression is. And then meanwhile, <coughs> meanwhile, there was a huge effort to try and understand in more detail the genetics and the biology and the biochemistry of the plant, which then would feed into what we call the second and third phase hybrids. So these are coming behind, and these are now starting to go into production in the fields next year, having already been field trialed. So just to give you one slide, because I realize time's passing. In the first phase slide, the first phase hybrids, these are the, the hairs that are running, right? We increased the genetic diversity of Artemis, we grew it up, served it, and then 23,000 individual lines were grown up and screened with all of this huge uh, amount of effort and equipment that we had. And artemisinin content was measured in each line, and we got something that was called a whole group of forward screen, don't worry about that, high yielders. And so what what those hairs are, are high yielders that are going forward, being tested, trying to get the perfect parents to cross to make a good hybrid. Yeah. And these hybrids are called the first phase hybrids. So I'm going to skip a few slides because I just don't have time. But perhaps here, so this started 2006-07, and we went through a whole range of different experimental techniques to get our first phase hybrids. And we'll have seed available for demonstrating to growers and extractors and to the ACT manufacturers next year and commercial production of seed in 2012. But you see, even that timeline is, is a long timeline. And we're already field trialing that particular hybrid, but that field trials, those field trials are still continuing. And we decided from the beginning, because the time was so short and we were under such stress of time, that we had to actually work with the commercial production regions of Artemisia. <coughs> we couldn't just run field trials here, there, and everywhere, and then try and persuade the commercial guys to get interested. <coughs> so we set up partnerships that the main areas of commercial production of this plant 
are actually field trialing our varieties. So they can see immediately how good or how bad our varieties are. Unfortunately, they're good. <laughs> and what we discovered also was that at the beginning of the project, it was great because it was all happening in York. It's happening in glass houses in York, it's happening in laboratories in York, and it's happening in some fields in Yorkshire. But then, within about 18 months, we were sending material out, you know, to Africa, to uh, Madagascar, to sites in India, to sites in China. And, and we realized that we had to have quality control so then we had to set up a new team that actually focused specifically on tracking all of this material using molecular genetics to make sure that actually when they said that plant's done that, we know it's that plant and not another plant. And in fact, at one field trial site, because our quality control was so good, we realized that what the farmers were doing, they didn't want to upset us. So if one of our plants died, they replaced it with one of their own. <laughs> and, you know, and then, so, and we wouldn't have known that if we hadn't got that quality control. So then we had to go out and say, look, you know, if they die, just leave it. You know, don't, don't please put in a different type of plant. So an enormous amount of energy has now gone into quality controlling. And we actually quality control using uh, uh, DNA markers everything, stock plants, propagated cuttings, hybrid seeds, bulk cuttings, everywhere. So you can imagine the amount of, of material, leaf material, that's coming backwards and forwards into and out of York all the time. And so the commercial production uh, field sites where we're trialing our plants, uh, we've got sites in Kenya, in Madagascar, in India, and they're relatively large flat fields which are easy to access. But our field trial manager, who comes from Zimbabwe, he has a hell of a time getting to the sites in Uganda and China. In China, it's nearly nine hours, you know, by truck to get to these sites. Um, but that's where these sites are, and we're getting incredibly useful information back from them. And at each of those sites, we've had to, in a sense, work very closely with the agricultural extension services that are local to those regions and the way that those local extension services work in order to actually collect all the data and uh, from the sites you know and we collect a whole range of agronomic data and weather data all of which build into our understanding of how our hybrids are doing in those different places so for example to date uh, we have uh, trials back from Madagascar and India. And we obviously, if you think, just look at this line. This is the local variety that those guys are using. And our varieties are about 60% in 2009, 50% higher uh, in yield than their local varieties. And at one stage, Artemis was the highest yielding variety out in the marketplace and we've got about a 25% improvement in Artemis over about three years. But the problem with Artemis is that it's a good plant. It was actually developed by a non-governmental organization in Switzerland, a um, charitable organization, but they made the seed in glass houses. So they made the hybrid seed from two parents crossing in glass houses. And because of the expense, they had to sell the seed at nearly $100,000 kilo. So it wasn't bought very widely. So what we've been trying to do is actually start to work with seed producers in Thailand and also in Africa to try and produce the seed from field-grown plants. So you've got two parents who've got a cross in the field. And that has a whole range of problems associated with it, because you've got to have the male and the female decide to get together at the same time. Can't have other, if they're not synchronized, they're not going to produce seed. And so there's a lot of issues about that, and that's probably why the Swiss actually stuck with glass and, and, and hope that people would buy it. So while all of the other work on these hairs were running, 
then we came in with much greater understanding of all these other characteristics to try and understand the best parents to produce the best hybrids. So we wanted high artemisinin, we wanted low levels of undesired compounds that may, for example, influence that artemisinin into deoxyartemisinin conversion. We want probably a lot of high biomass, particularly for India. We want them easy to propagate. We don't want the growers to think, what on earth have I got here? You know? uh, low susceptibility to disease. And then we wanted to develop uh, quantitative trait loci molecular markers, DNA markers, that we could actually score for a variety of different traits about Artemisia that we wanted. Now, these can be developed, but you need genetics, so you also need, and I'm not a geneticist, okay, but you also need a genetic map. And so we were fortunate in uh, our work actually leading to uh, the first genetic map of Artemisia annua, and that was published in Science at the beginning of uh, this year, in fact. And that then uh, enabled us to get to grips with uh, chromosomes and get to grips with markers for different aspects of this plant on chromosomes. And for example, to find QTLs, to find DNA markers that would say, yes, you know, here is a region on this particular chromosome where effectively it's important both for artemisinin concentration and artemisinin yield. In other words, the amount of artemisinin in the leaf and the size of the plant. And we released a whole range of information into the public sector in order to help other breeding uh, groups, groups involved in artemisia breeding, uh, to actually use this data. So while the hairs were running, right, there was this huge activity of genetics going on in parallel. And now that huge activity of genetics and that huge activity of, of, of metabolite analysis is leading us into the second and third phase hybrids because we're picking up new parents because we know now more about these plants than we did when the hairs were running. And so for example, just, just actually probably that's the only thing you need to think of is that we've actually got DNA markers associated with all those different biochemical steps, if you remember, leading down to artemisinin and past down into uh, beyond artemisinin. So this is just really highlighting uh, the fact that we can now start to choose parents, whether they're better parents or worse parents, on the basis both of their artemisinin content but also, for example, on their impact on how easy it is to extract artemisinin from those leaves, and whether the ACT manufacturers have artemisinin with no other products that will get in the way of how they make artemisinin combination therapies. So these second and third phase hybrids are now under glass in York, and we're getting some uh, some data back from glass-grown plants of hybrids to suggest that we do have some, some really good plants there that are coming in from all this other information that can then complement and extend the usefulness of the varieties that are developed by our project. So, to finish, I mean, artemisinin is, is, is a crucially important product, and I think I've been taking completely outside of my comfort zone on this project because my comfort zone is actually inside the trico. You know, that's where I like to be. And you know, I'm talking to novartists, I'm talking to growers in Madagascar, and you know, it's it's a completely different world. But in a way, it's it's really I think important to have scientists interacting in the delivery of this project because they understand the strengths and weaknesses of the approaches that we're taking and how best to actually talk to the growers and talk to the extractors about how they can use these new varieties. So really now we're rolling out the new varieties. So the charitable funding is enabling us to develop new varieties of Artemisia. Our field trials are coming back now daily from Uganda, from Kenya, from China, from two sites in India. 
and suggesting that we're starting to get really Artemisia as a robust uniform. Farmers can't stand a great plant and then the next one and a different plant. They want uniformity, robust, large, nice plants. And we're beginning to get hybrids that are robust and uniform and where we can actually start to get extraction at that higher level, not right down at 40%, but at a much higher level in terms of artemisinin and extraction. And so the purpose is to stabilize the supply of artemisinin. And our, our, uh, our end point is to provide our new varieties as hybrid seed, which then can go all the way through the supply chain into ACTs, which then hopefully the global community of health providers can make sure get to the patients that need them. So when you think about the healing power of plants, you know, I sort of did this when I was feeling a bit sort of frustrated one day, because it's like, it's great, you know, artemisia does contain artemisinin. Artemisinin is a fantastic molecule. It not only um, combats plasmodia, but there's also uh, increasing clinical trials of it on, on, on other diseases. Uh, it's highly toxic. Um, and, you know, it's great. But, you know, you have to, in order to get the realization you know, as David says, we would say, you know, to realize the full potential uh, of the healing power of plants, then there's a whole host of stuff that actually fit around the, 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 the possibility of helping people. You've got to have good varieties. Environmental impacts, China, right, this year, lost most of its artemisia. It either got washed away in floods or it got dried out. So the production in China was way down this year. And people were, uh, and this was talked about at the Madagascar conference, where I ate those prawns. Um, people are now in, in, in getting in a mess in China because they used so much wild leaf last year because there was such environmental impacts that effectively, with them taking whatever wild leaf they could find that was still alive, they're now getting into a problem in 2011 because they haven't got seed, because they've actually more or less taken all of the plants. So environmental impacts are not just on growth, it's on the supply chain. The agronomy and the extension services, you know, you can, there are books on how to grow artemisia, which are effectively useless, because they don't take any notice whatsoever of the local conditions working with the local growers and the local traditions. And effectively, you have to work with extension services that exist in order to actually provide or make a difference. Huge competition for land, for food crops. You've got the politics of local product for local treatment. Huge issue in Africa. You've got problems of harvesting. Plants can be harvested and then effectively you can lose the artemisia. You've got extractors requiring vast sums for capital facilities. One of the extractors in Madagascar has spent you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a new capital facility for a really, really super extraction system of artemisia. But the extraction system is, is very expensive to run. And that's why that particular extractor doesn't want a lot of biomass, because effectively it's going to take more of the solvent, which is very expensive, to get the artemisinin out. You've got the growers and the extractors and the farmers and how they, the farmer, how they fit together. We had a hilarious discussion before our project officers at Gates knew that we were really okay, because they kept talking about farmer. And at York, we kept thinking that every time they talked about the farmers, they were talking about the growers. And we had this hilarious conversation where they just couldn't understand what we were saying, we couldn't understand what they were saying. And in the end, they agreed that they could call them farmers and we would call them growers. <laughs> and then you've got the, 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 
vast area, as I say, of enormously committed people, uh, the international donors, um, working with patient awareness, forecasting inadequacies. I mean, one of the issues here is the product shelf life. ACTs can't sit on the shelf for years and not be used. So you have a major issue there of turnaround when the products actually get to the countries where they're going to be used and they're not just simply left in customs. And you have this issue also, there's many others, but you have this major issue of fake and substandard drugs. And we've been to shops and, and sort of little, little places to buy, to buy ACTs and have found that 50% of those that were bought out in developing countries have been fake. You know? And they're very good fakes, you know? uh, which is just desperate in this situation. So, as we sit here tonight, the current situation of artemisinin, well, nearly 30% lost production in China due to climate. The content uh, in China in the leaves that were collected uh, are lower than usual. There's about 90 to 105 tons of artemisinin available until June 2011. This is from WHO figures. The global demand in 2011 is about 300 million treatments. And that requires, you know, between 115 to 130 to 145 tons of artemisinin. So currently, we're at a position where the production of artemisinin will not cover the consumption of artemisinin in making those treatments. And what that means is that there's going to be a major impact on price. And the price, which was down at 150 or $100 a kilo, recently is now back up to 400 or $450 a kilo. And so we're just beginning to go into a sort of boom cycle. In 2011, there's a projected gap of 20 to 40 tons. But interestingly, when Gates funded us, they've also funded Joe Keatsling's group in Berkeley a few years earlier to try and take the plant genes that were involved in artemisinin production and then transfer them to a bacterium or the yeast and get it into ferm fermenters, get it into industrial fermentation. And Keesling's lab did a good job um, in transferring some of the genes. And then there was an absolutely superb Canadian biochemist that very recently discovered a couple of other genes which played a key role. In. And um, they're licensed now to Sanofi, which is a major pharmaceutical company taking this industrial fermentation of artemisinin forward. And they're using um, Covalo's genes, which have massively increased the yield of bacteria or yeast, I can't mm -hmm. use yeast actually. And so they are thinking that actually this fermenter-produced artemisinin will start to become available in 2011. And indeed, by 2012, will be available to supply the needs of artemisinin. So you have Gates backing uh, a plant project and also the fermenter project. And their aim is to eradicate malaria. They really don't mind where the artemisinin comes from. And I think really we can't or shouldn't mind where the artemisinin comes from. You know, because the objective is to eradicate malaria. So I think that the semi-synthetic fermenter artemisinin will start to have to play a big role in the market for, uh, for ACT production. But I think that some countries, particularly I think India and particularly the big generic pharmaceutical companies like Bitco and Sipler, both of those seem very, very committed to the cultivation of artemisia and to be having this so-called, I'm not sure what it means, but back integrated strategy where the company that makes the ACTs actually also has the entire supply chain where they actually grow the plants that make the optimism that goes into the ACTs. So I think India and also China will probably still be involved a lot in plant cultivation. And I think that's where our varieties will have a major impact. In Africa, I think that they will probably be involved in both um, the uh, use of the semi-synthetic as well as the plant-derived optimism.
So in 2012, it really depends on whether the farmers will produce uh, Artemisia and Moore in their fields, and also the availability, as I say, coming online from Sanofi and the Center Synthetic. And beyond 2012, well then, who knows? And I'd like to stop that. Thank you. <laughs>